0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas.
1: I'm Sarah Jordan.
2: And I'm Gavin Cooper. Hi, welcome to Series 3, Episode 5. And today we are joined by Magdalena Jajo and John Dempster from the UCLH Immunology Team. They support many patients following hematological treatments. Patients having rituximab, CAR T-cells, brutinib, and following autologous stem cell transplant can all require immunoglobulin support in the long-term as their antibody production can remain impaired. We also talk a little bit about XLA, HIV, and hepatitis C. And John talks us through the administration of immunoglobulins at home and how these treatments can now be given to patients to self-care with, given via subcut routing. I guess we wanted to talk about secondary immunodeficiencies as well. I mean, what would be the uh, sort of most common immunodeficiencies that would be considered secondary then for So, so for I us? think
0: at the moment, or maybe going back a few years, mm. they were in hematology, people would use either chemotherapy, which would just wipe off the immune system and they would then pick up. But more recently, we have all the monoclonal antibodies, and we pick up patients, especially who would be who are treated with rituximab, that you probably are very familiar with, yeah. which is a wonder drug. I remember first developing many years ago, and I worked in Italy, and we were treating this. Uh, we're using rituximab for CD twenty positive lymphomas then, and I remember my patient developing actually cytokine uh, release uh, symptoms then. And since then, as you know, rituximab is a marvel drug using. Lymphomas using in autoimmune conditions okay. simply because it targets the autoreactive CD20 B lymphocytes. But if we, t- we talk about B lymphocytes, uh, B comes from the word bursa, and that comes from bursa is a bug. And the, this comes because they were first described, I think, in the birds. And birds have the organ called Bersa, oh, which okay. is an immune organ. And that's where the bee the B comes from, if I remember rightly. But these B-lymphocytes then, in simple terms, if they are deleted by using rituximab, we do not have antibody-producing cells. The interesting thing is and nobody quite understands why it is, the plasma cells produce antibodies, Mm -hmm. but it is the CD20 positive B lymphocytes that are wiped off, and plasma cells do not have a CD20 receptor. But for the mechanism that I don't think is well understood, in 10% approximately of patients, this destruction of B cells is long-term. So people do not... Are unable after the treatment with ritaximab to, uh, to, to, to have these cells back, mm-hmm. or the cells do not work properly. And patients come to us, severe infections, chest infections, respiratory tract infections, IgG of 2, uh, low IgM, low IgA, and this is the result. So by wiping one part of the immune system and not recognizing. So if there is one message that we would like from the clinical viewpoint to pass on to the hematology community, is any patient treated with a wonder drug in hematology potentially can develop immunodeficiency. So they need a follow-up, checking the immunoglobulin levels on a regular basis every six months, for example, and monitoring them for infections because the the deficiency will occur later and patients will be discharged from you We say, great, lymphoma is gone. But then three years later, they are with us with bronchiectasis, so damaged lungs as a result of recurrent infections. Because as a result, they lost the antibody production, but nobody actually realized that.
2: And I guess we're dealing with more and more immunotherapies that will then kind of feed into your specialty later on Exactly. Down the
0: line. So one of the new things is the Yocar T-cell amazing center and treating patients. However, as part of the IVAG panel, John and I are on our UCLH IVAG panel, we approved treatment with immunoglobulin replacement therapy. We now get more and more requests for patients treated with CAR T-cell, which is still, I think, the treatment that we are still learning what yes. happens to these patients longer term. Certainly, we observe that as a result of this very effective treatment, the immunoglobulins often are Internal endogenous immunoglobulin production is actually wiped off, and they become hypogammaglobulinemic, and need antibody replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. The other very interesting drug is, and I find it fascinating, is ibrutinib yeah. that you use for CLL. For mm-hmm. the, and if you think about the immune system and the B cell, so the B cell mature from very very immature. B cells to mature plasma cells. The very mature uh, plasma cells, in order to mature, there is a gene called BTK, and it's called Bruton kinase. And that is, uh, name comes from a person who first described it, I think, in 1950s. was a military doctor, and after his name. The gene, which is responsible for maturation of the cell, is called BTK. And there is a primary immunodeficiency called XLA, or Lex-linked a-gamma globulinemia, patients with this condition have a mutation in this gene, and therefore they have no B-cells, and or functioning B-cells, hardly they have no B-cells, and they make zero antibodies. And unless they are diagnosed, these are boys, because this is X-linked, and treated with antibody replacement therapy earlier on, they will die from complications. What you do, I mean not you, but what the <laughs> hematologists do for the treatment of CLL, the drug developed called ibrutinib is essentially the same drug blocking the same BTK pathway. It blocks BTK. So you induce XLA in your patients. Mm-hmm. Okay, But because the immune system is redundant, the other things would protect the patients. But patients with ibrutinib treated with ibrutinib potentially also at risk of developing antibody deficiency long term, And other problems, because we are getting to more complex, because this BTK is also involved in the maturation of other parts of the immune system, like T cells. So infections with ibrutinib can be like more wide, rather than just antibody-deficient type infections.
1: So for our patients that are on ibrutinib, is there anything we do prophylactically to stop them from developing... Or being more susceptible to infections? So
0: it is my understanding and I don't know what the protocols are that some of these patients and I don't know honestly at this stage when would be started on prophylactic antibiotics and antivirals and uh, the management would be to give them prophylactic clovir and prophylactic septrin, for example to stop them from getting the infection but I don't know when how quickly your, co- your hematology colleagues introduce it whether they start the treatment and monitor and then give, or whether it's part of the protocol and that is given immediately, I don't know.
1: And more long-term would it be the treatment of immunoglobulins to help patients like that post-treatment?
0: So the, the very important thing with immunoglobulin replacement therapy is that with regards to hematological malignancies treated some people will need immunoglobulin replacement therapy for a couple of years for example patients who might have autologous bone marrow transplant as part of the treatment or some other treatments and they slowly recover the immune system pick up so what we do we give them immunoglobulin replacement therapy for a period of time closely monitor and when it is time we reduce the dose but they are well and we can stop primary immunodeficiency it is lifelong in some patients either with rituximab, ibrutinib, or even autologous bone marrow transplant. When they develop antibody deficiency, we monitor, but they never pick up on the internal production, and in these patients, the treatment will be lifelong.
2: We see with newly diagnosed lymphoma patients, people who might be diagnosed with HIV at the same time. Could you give us some insight into what's happening in the immune system with HIV?
0: So with HIV... The virus is very clever because it infects what protects the human being. So it infects the CD4 cell, to put it simple as Mm -hmm. you know. So there will be an acute phase. But what happens, there will be an acute infection of the CD4 cell and the majority of the cells, so many, will die. But if you think, if the virus killed all the cells at the same time, the patient will die, but also the virus, would, the host, would die because it has to be transmitted for its own survival. So it goes to the latent phase, means it is dormant, it stays in CD4 cells mainly, has a low level of replication, but doesn't go away. It is also able to infect other parts of the immune system, some of the antigen presenting cells. Therefore, it's difficult because even if you do bone marrow transplant having new new cells, you will not be able to get rid totally of HIV, because it will be able to stay dormant in some other cells within our body. For years, the CD4 cells will be infected and there would be the small, low-grade proliferation. And then, at some point, there would be the increase in the replication of the virus and the cells will be destroyed. And then, when patients start developing opportunistic infections, Kaposi's sarcoma, and they die. Luckily, not anymore, Mm -hmm. because with the triple, uh, sort of with various therapies for HIV, I think in the developed countries nobody dies. It is fascinating how over the times with the research we managed to uh,
2: control and
0: control and to prolong people's lives. So now HIV is considered from the immune system viewpoint as a chronic infection which requires treatment with antiretroviral medication to maintain the virus at very low level of replication you can get rid of it but stays there and doesn't cause any problems even more fascinating is the hepatitis c virus that until recently the infection would be chronic you couldn't really get rid of it and now with the new medications you just remove hepatitis c virus altogether but the, sadly mentioning about secondary antibody deficiency and i also like to mention that because we live in london in the lovely a work in the lovely UCLH, but the most common cause of immunodeficiency secondary worldwide is actually malnutrition. It is mainly if you think you need protein synthesis, making cells, making antibodies, making everything. People who are malnourished, they make no antibodies. They have no uh, enough proteins, etc., etc. And this is really so sad. Mm. But uh, and what is the treatment? You ask is just change in the economy of the world yes that's the thing so so maybe just to finish off that we have John with us and John joined us recently at UCLH and he is a lead welcome John thank you immunology <laughs> and allergy sort of a service here and John has so many 15 years expertise mm. in treating patients with antibody replacement therapy the therapies have changed. They developed just like IV infusions and then uh, the subcutaneous treatment has been developed and m- more recently uh, the patients are encouraged to have treatments at home so they can have home therapy.
2: I had no
1: idea there was you could have subcut.
2: Yeah, okay. So
1: there are several ways of giving the immunoglobulin replacement and um, the more conventional way historically I suppose was the IVIG where you go yeah. to the hospital yeah. and you got the intravenous drip of the antibodies and I think it's probably unique really to immunology and maybe some neurology now where they do this thing called subcutaneous immunoglobulin where you can train the patients to kind of give it themselves at home and you can give it as a once a week infusion or you can give it as a daily small injection just like you know a little shot and patients you know on the whole, really like it um, because they don't have to come in um, to hospital once every three or four weeks and sit there for three or four hours. Um, I train them, takes two or three sessions. It's really easy. It's usually on average of about maybe between 40 and 60 mLs a week. Mm -hmm. Put it just in a, you know, little ambulatory pump and inject it through into or four sites in the abdomen, subcutaneous tissue, over about an hour. Wow. And it gives, um, them gives them more
2: control over more lifestyle. Then.
1: And they get a little, there's this phenomenon some of the IVIG patients will describe of a wear-off effect with IVIG. So you give them, you know, a whopping great intravenous dose mm. once every month and they feel great for the first two weeks. And in third and fourth week they can feel yeah. that the levels are kind of starting to tail off and then they get mm. really tired or, you know, they just, they describe it as a wear-off. Whereas with the subcutaneous um, version or format they get a little bit of the antibodies every week and rather than getting the big peaks and troughs in their blood levels they get a constant steady state and a lot of them prefer that Mm -hmm. Um, and the most recent kind of advance is what um something called facilitated subcutaneous immunoglobulin so now you can give intravenous doses subcutaneously um with um, an adjunct treatment of um recombinant hyaluronidase so you inject the recombinant hyaluronidase first. It opens up, you know, huge spaces in your subcutaneous tissue, and you can inject really large volumes of IV into your subcutaneous tissue, uh-huh. and wow. it gets absorbed over the next kind of forty-eight hours. Wow. Um, and rather than getting, um, you know, kind of the lumps and bumps yeah. with the conventional subcut, it just kind of, you know, flattens out like a flat pancake effect okay. over your abdomen. So just to put things into perspective. A- we had a patient who was on immunomodulatory doses, for f- and we were giving her 120 grams of this stuff once every four weeks, and she was able to inject the 120 grams in about four hours in two sites.
0: Oh, that's
1: incredible, isn't it? Rather than having to come into hospital yeah. over yeah. two days and have it, so things are getting a lot better. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so thank much. You for so much. Time. Like, thank, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It was <laughs> <laughs> very, very